I'm Paul, and this is Untold Civil War. Tonight, we are covering the ever-important but sadly neglected story of the Navy. Before we do that, let's take a moment to acknowledge that this podcast probably holds the record for the most giveaways out of all Civil War podcasts. Right now, we've got two going. One is for my Patreon patrons. They will be in the running for a Confederate war bond token and a copy of A Rebellious Woman by Claire Griffin. Drawing will be on Remembrance Day at Gettysburg. We have another Patreon patron giveaway coming up in Christmas. So sign up on Patreon for as low as $3 a month. That way you'll support the show and be in the running for these great Civil War prizes. Now, for Halloween, we have a giveaway open to all my listeners. Drawing will be for a few Halloween-themed Civil War stickers designed by our sponsor, 1863 Designs. Ty is the leading graphic designer in the Civil War space, and he is your go-to in regards to any design you might need for a Civil War business, event, podcast, reenacting group, heck, even your online War of Rights group. Check him out in the link in the show notes. If you want to be in the running for the Halloween stickers, go ahead and use the Facebook link and Instagram link in the show notes and follow the given instructions. And now, find your heading, pick up steam, and let's delve into some untold Civil War. Welcome to the Untold Civil War. I'm here with Matthew Young, who is the current site manager at the CSS News Civil War Museum. I'm so glad to have you on the show to talk about the CSS news because I like to cover untold stories. And unfortunately, the naval side of the Civil War seems to be untold. Um, but before we get into that, I'd like to thank Drew Gruber from Civil War Trails. Not only is Civil War Trails a sponsor of this show, but Drew was the one who sort of uh, brought Matthew Young and the CSS news to my attention. So thank you to Drew and please check out Civil War Trails by using the link in the show notes. So with that, just to kick this off, I think we mentioned it before. I was reading your bio, and I was really interested because when I went to infantry OSIT, you know, infantry basic training at Fort Benning, Georgia, I was able to visit both the National Civil War Naval Museum and the National Infantry Museum. Both are fantastic museums, and you did time at both, correct? I did. I, I actually I started my my museum career at the National Civil War Naval Museum in Columbus, Georgia. I, I went to high school. I went to college in Columbus, Georgia. So it's kind of um, what, what you know. If I, I call home, I did seven years uh, as the education director at the at the um, at Port Columbus, and then I went over to the Infantry Museum. So I went from boats to boots, and I did uh, I did five years over at the Infantry Museum. And while we were at the Infantry Museum, I was able to um, host a symposium. And we did a symposium for the 150th anniversary of the Civil War. Uh, it was one of the one of the really cool projects I was able to be involved in uh, at the Infantry Museum with the National Infantry Foundation. Just to go over some of the really cool things at those two museums, just to talk about it. The National Infantry Museum has the great exhibit, the last hundred yards, right? Yeah, it basically it takes you through. It's a it's a hundred yard walk from the bottom of the exhibit all the way to the top. And as you're doing it, you're literally walking through the footsteps of the infantrymen. As you advance through history, uh, you start at Yorktown uh, with the American Revolution. You advance through Antietam, of course, which is your bailiwick, uh, so to speak, with Civil War. Uh, and then it moves you through Soissons in World War I. You hit D-Day and then Corregidor in World War II. 
you go through uh, Korean War, and then you end up at LZ X-ray in Vietnam. And the last one you go through, I think, is like uh, Iraq circa like 2006 uh, with a Bradley fighting vehicle um, at the end. And then you kind of ascend to the top of the ramp. And it, and it really does kind of, it's, it's, a, it's a slight incline that takes you all the way up. Um, so if you haven't seen it, it's, it's very well done. And you should definitely check it out. And they're basically life-size life dioramas. Can you call it that? Life-size displays, right? Yeah, they, they really are. It, it's like you you take, it, it's almost everyone is 10 or 12 yards as you're kind of walking through. And they have uh, sounds and music playing and lights. And uh, so it's, it's, it's not necessarily interactive, but the idea is to kind of make you feel like you're there as you're walking through. And now uh, bringing it back to the National Civil War Naval Museum, over there, uh, there's also a very neat display that has an ironclad, right? Yeah, there's, you know, there's one, uh, there's the ironclad that's there is the remains of the ironclad CSS Jackson. And uh, the Jackson was also known as the Muskogee as it was being built. Uh, it was designed, believe it or not, as a paddle-wheeled ironclad. I don't know who thought that was a great idea because one cannonball through that paddle wheel and you're kind of stranded. And I think they started to figure that out as the um, as the building process continued. So they decided to scrap the paddle wheel and they went with the two steam screw engines in the Jackson. And it was launched into the river into the Chattahoochee about December of 1864. Uh, and they just were not able to complete it before the war end uh, when Wilson's raid happens in April of 1865 in, in Columbus. And so she is uh, captured, burned, and set adrift down the river. They also have two life-size replicas, you know, small pieces of both the USS Monitor and the CSS Albemarle, which is a, another North Carolina ironclad. And actually, the Albemarle is the sister ship to the CSS News. They're both built off the same set of plans. They're both built in North Carolina. They're both built to defend the river system. Uh, Albemarle is actually built to defend the, uh, the Roanoke River, whereas Noose is built uh, for defense in the Noose River. Uh, and they're both built almost at the same time. Uh, the, the biggest major difference as you look at the two is that the Noose actually has 10 gun ports uh, whereas the, um, the Albemarle only has uh, six. Maybe you reenact, but you do not have a soldier impression. Maybe you want to represent the many civilians that were affected by four years of bloody conflict. Well, the only way to stay true to the civilians who are there is to look at the primary sources. The Excelsior Brigade has a fantastic collection of original civilian images that belong in the collection of any true reenactor with a civilian impression. Please see them at the link in the show notes. Just to get into it, you know, for people who might not know, what exactly is an ironclad when we're talking about ironclads? And, and one thing I'd like to get into, was this a new idea? I know I, some people I've mentioned that this was brand new, never seen before. And then some people say we may have seen this sort of thing in the Crimean War. You know, yeah, so yeah. what's the story so, behind that? So the, the whole concept of ironclads really developed out of the Crimean War, as you say. The, the French decided to build uh, outside of Sevastopol, uh, in what is now the Ukraine. So, I mean, it, it all kind of comes back to, uh, kind of circles around. It's, it's interesting. They built what was known as basically an armored floating battery. 
So facing the city, they had a two-tiered battery of guns that were facing, and they had armor plating kind of on the outside, and it was fairly open to the rear. So facing the city, if the city should decide to bombard it, it was going to hit the armor plating and bounce off. What happens is they take this idea and they say, hey, we can make a moving vessel that is armor or iron plated with the advance of steam machinery and steam engines. They figure that armor, armor vessels are too heavy uh, to be very effective in the age of sail. Uh, with just sail propulsion, they're not practical. But once you get steam machinery involved and steam machinery is able to move something that heavy, uh, sometimes you see steam and sail. The French actually commissioned the very first ironclad in 1859 called the La Gloria. It is said that Queen Elizabeth, excuse me, Queen Victoria saw this and was not pleased that her baby was being outdone by the French. And so the British quickly get on board and they build, design, and commission the HMS Warrior, uh, which is still afloat and has been reconditioned. I've been on board HMS Warrior. Uh, she's anchored in, uh, in Great Britain. And uh, she is a, a steam sail ship, has a long row of guns, but armor iron plated on the outside, ocean going vessel. And it's this trickle of information and new design that works its way back across the Atlantic in time uh, in 1861 for the Confederate Secretary of the Navy, Stephen Mallory, to realize, hey, there is no way we're going to be able to keep up with the uh, numbers of ships that the Union Navy has. Perhaps we need to look for harbor and river defense. And that's exactly what they end up doing by building ironclads. And the first prototype they have is, of course, the what had been the Merrimack, the steam frigate Merrimack. They commission it the CSS Virginia. And for a single day, the Confederate Navy goes out, destroys two Union blockaders in March of 1862. And then the Union answer to ironclads shows up the next day, the SS Monitor. Going from there, you sort of started to talk about it, but I think one important part of this story are the rivers, right? Could you talk about the yes. strategic importance of the rivers during the Civil War? Well, the rivers, especially in the South, are, are highways to the interior of the states. Of course, the Mississippi River cut the South in two. You have other rivers that go up from port ports like Galveston and Mobile and Savannah, uh, Charleston, uh, Wilmington, and Norfolk. All these important ports have rivers that go up further into the state. And when it came to North Carolina, you had the Roanoke, you had the Tar, you had the Noose, and then of course you have the Cape Fear down in Wilmington. All of these rivers, uh, North Carolina officials felt could be highways into the interior and that they needed to be protected, or the Union Navy could just ferry the army army up these rivers and land at will in a number of important internal points in North Carolina. One of those was Goldsboro, uh, which was a, a critical rail junction where a lot of supplies passed through to get up to Lee's army in Virginia. And so they said, hey, we have to protect these rivers. What's the best way to do that? Hey, let's build ironclads. And, and for the South, ironclads are wooden ships on the bottom 
with iron armored plate on the outside to protect them. Uh, the Union built those as well, a, a lot of them on the Mississippi River. And then they also built solid iron ships, kind of like the Monitor, that had rotating gun turrets uh, that could fire cannons in any direction that they needed to be fired through the rotating turret. That's another invention that is brand new uh, in the Civil War is the rotating gun turret that you would end up seeing on battleships later on in, in you know, in the World War One, in the Great War, and then later on in World War Two. Looking for somewhere to take the family, which will be educational, entertaining, and a bonding experience? Use the link in the show notes to access Civil War Trails. This great sponsor has marked some great trails for you to experience that put you in the footsteps of the soldiers of the Civil War. Some will be hiking trails, others will lead you through the city. There is something for everyone. So you talked about how important the rivers are. You talked about this idea of the ironclads. It sort of really culminates and, and creates this perfect environment for the CSS noose to come to fruition. So how does that happen? So the contract for the noose is led in October of 1862, and they get to building right away. Um, the contract is awarded to a, a shipbuilding firm out of New Bern. The issue is that New Bern has been under federal occupation since March of 1862. So they're not building at their home office. Uh, they have to actually build the ironclad at a place that is now called Seven Springs, North Carolina. Uh, at the time, it was known as Whitehall. I think it had a greater population in the Civil War than it does now. It is a really tiny place. The ship is built on the north bank of the river. Uh, it is attacked during Foster's Raid in December of 1862, and uh, uh, construction is basically halted for six to eight weeks. Uh, they resume construction in the spring of 63. Uh, they put the ship into the river. They float it down to Kinston. They build a coffer dam in downtown Kinston uh, at kind of a deep part of the river, and they proceed to work on the ironclad until about April of 1864. But it's here in Kinston that they outfit the ship for war. They add the iron superstructure. They put in the boilers. They put in the engines. They add the coal. They add the machinery. And then, of course, they also add the cannons and the casemate. And once all that is done, she is commissioned in April of 1864. And her mission at that time is to go downriver in conjunction with, the, uh, with her sister ship, the Albemarle, in an attempt to retake Newburn for the Confederacy. The issue is the, the Albemarle runs into a few Union ships, as you can see in the, the behind me called Cornfield Ironclad. It's one of my favorite paintings. And that uh, the noose actually runs aground. It's not far from Kinston. So she's unable to continue her mission uh, as well. So uh, both kind of fall back into the position of, of defensive ironclads to protect their respective river systems. And the CSS News will eventually see combat, right? That's right. In, in uh, March of 1865, as Sherman is coming in through the south, there are troops that have captured Wilmington. They are moving north. Schofield and Cox, uh, their forces start to move out of New Bern. And again, the, the junction that all three of these columns are trying to get to is Goldsboro. The remnants of the Army of Tennessee under the command of Joseph E. Johnston are kind of put on rails as much as possible and shipped to this part of North Carolina. Overall command uh, devolves to Braxton Bragg. And in March of 1865, there's a the largest battle in the state of North Carolina up to that point. 
was fought in the outskirts of Kinston in a place called Wise Fork, W-Y-S-E. And uh, the Wise Fork battle is fought over three days. Uh, the first day is a resounding Confederate victory, despite the number difference. The second day is kind of a draw. And the third day is, is a federal victory. At that point, General Bragg orders a retreat. And he tells the commander, he issues orders to the commander in the noose to scuttle the ship. Uh, to prevent it from being captured. Uh, go down, fire, basically the orders were go down, harass the Federals as much as you can, then come back to Kinston, beach the ship, destroy it, fire it, burn it to prevent anything from being captured. Once that happens, about half of the crew kind of go their own way. The other half of the crew go up towards Halifax, North Carolina, which is, is not far from the Virginia border, who await further orders, but they, they really never come. The, the end of the war happens. Would you say that the CSS Noose was successful in its combat missions? It had a mission. It had one mission, which is to harass the federal troops as they approached Kinston, which, which it did. We have the a copy of a letter written by one of the gunners off the CSS Noose, and he said the booming was her funeral null, basically meaning that uh, she, you know, she accomplished her mission. She fired on federal troops for about an hour and a half. And then turned around, came back down uh, upriver, and that was the end of her career. Uh, she served from about April of 1864 to March of 1865, so about 11 months. She went through three different captains in her 11-month service. Most of the other officers um, were pretty much uh, on border for a majority of the time. Her enlisted crew varied at that time. Uh, a lot of the uh, warrant officers changed positions. Uh, gunners for example, changed at least once. Was she successful in her mission? Yes. Ultimately, though, like almost every other Confederate ironclad, she is destroyed by her crew uh, to prevent her capture. Most Confederate ironclads of the, the 26 different ironclads that are commissioned by the South during the war, most of them end up being destroyed by the Confederates themselves, uh, again, to prevent their capture. Uh, a few are captured by Union forces. The CSS Atlanta is the best example of that. The Atlanta is actually turned into the USS Atlanta, and it serves as a Union ship uh, after um, being captured. But again, most Confederate ships are destroyed by their own side. You started talking a little bit about the crew. I'd like to get into what was life like for sailors on board the CSS News? Most of the officers did not want to be there. Uh, most of the officers are professional Annapolis graduates. The backwoods brown water Navy is not exactly a prestigious post to be at. In addition, there had been a, a lack a, a lack of crewmen available for the Confederate Navy until 1864. Uh, Stephen Mallory writes President Jefferson Davis, and he says, look, I have several ironclads that are going to be coming online in the first and second quarter of 1864. The biggest problem is we have officers, but no crew, because the Army monopolizes every single man they can get a hold of. So Secretary Mallory makes an appeal to President Davis, saying, we need to have between basically two to 4,000 men in order to arm and equip and make sure that these ironclads are functional. 
that's about where the Confederate Navy needs to be, four to 5,000 men. So President Davis in January of 1864 has to have a meeting with General Lee to say, hey, how many of these guys that you have have naval experience and can be basically transferred from the Confederate Army into the Navy to be used as personnel? And Lee has to write to his division and brigade commanders saying you need to send X number of men out of your command for service in the Confederate Navy. Now, if you put yourself in the place of a brigade commander in Lee's army, you're already short of manpower. So what are you going to do when the big guy comes down and says, hey, I need need 120 guys. Are you going to look at your best and brightest? Are you going to look at at your frontline guys who have been in your brigade for years, who have have shown faithful service and send them to the Confederate Navy? No. (laughs) You are going to look at guys two different ways. You're going to look at, number one, the deserters, the shirkers, the guys, the malingerers, the ones who have been found guilty of desertion or are constantly absent from your command. You're going to send those guys to the Navy because they're the troublemakers. Get them the hell out of the Army. Make them the Navy's problem. That's the first kind of guys you're going to send. And the news and a lot of other ships got men just like that. Men who had been tried for desertion, for AWOL, for constantly being absent, or they were malingerers, or they were always conveniently uh, detached for sick call uh, when it came time to fight. Those are guys that ended up going to the Navy. But there's also a very different set of men who are also transferred, and those are men who are combat wounded, uh, men who had been shot or wounded by shell fragments in the knee, in the foot, in the neck, in the head, some of them who had been wounded at least twice before being transferred. And you think, well, why? Why would you transfer combat wounded veterans who have proven themselves under fire in Civil War combat, why would you send these guys to the Navy? Bottom line is, a lot of these guys, because of their injuries, they were no longer fit for field service. They just could not keep up with the pace that many Civil War armies had to travel in order to be on active campaign service. If you have a knee wound, if you have a foot wound, you're much less likely to be able to keep up with the pace of marching than uh, someone who has no wounds in their lower extremity. And these guys are also transferred into the Navy. And the noose has two or three or four men who have documented two, one, at least one, some two, and I think one of them had three different injuries during service in the Confederate Army. So they just can't keep up. So you get combat wounded soldiers in as sailors with the same group of guys who have been convicted and sentenced for desertion, for not being there. So I can only imagine that maybe there was a little bit of a a tense relation between these two different types uh, of individuals who <laughs> end up serving alongside one another, but their army careers were very, very different before they end up in the Navy. On social media, I have been inundated with organizations peddling cheap and poor of quality items for Civil War reenacting. In my opinion, 
They are plague to the hobby. Shop at the badge maker. He never sacrifices quality, and as a reenactor himself, his work does justice to the hobby. Link in the show notes. Do we have letters that describe life on board ship, maybe how they slept, where the quarters were, that sort of thing? Not exactly on the news. We do have a, a, a copies of some of the letters, but we know just based on how the how the ship was laid out that men either slept in hammocks because we have hammock rings and hammock hooks been found um, in the remains of the ship. We also have copies of uh, invoices that were paid by the Confederate Navy for wooden bunk beds. Now, were all those wooden bunk beds for the crew? We think that maybe some of those were for warrant officers or for officers, and that the crew largely slept in hammocks but there's no way to tell 100% sure that crew only had hammocks, officers only had bunks. The only thing we do know is that both hammocks and bunks are seen on board the ship. As far as living conditions, we do have letters from other sailors on other ships in the very same type of vessel as the news was. So ironclad vessel. There are some men who basically are pleading with the captain, do not make us spend another night below decks where it is 120 plus degrees with the boilers being fired by coal, with the firebox going, with the steam engines boiling water in order to get the steam. God, please do not make us spend another night below decks. And basically the captain's like, yeah, sure, we'll we'll stop the ship. We'll let you sleep on shore. The problem is the sand fleas will eat you alive if you are on shore. And most of the guys are like, we don't care. We would rather be eaten alive by mosquitoes and fleas than to spend another night in 120 degrees. So while that is not exactly the news, that is the type of environment that a lot of these men would have had to endure in times below deck. To me, that just sounds wild and sane. <laughs> I would not have wanted to have been below decks in, in ironclad service. However, if someone said, you have to serve 160 years ago in the Navy, where are you going to go? My number one answer would not have been in ironclad service. That, honestly, that would have been about number 18 or number 20 on my list of postings, if I had my choice, if you said, hey, Matt, what is your number one place you would have gone if you had to have been in the Navy in the Civil War, my number one place, blockade runner or blockade service on the Union side, on the Confederate side, absolutely blockade runner. You have a fast, sleek, narrow uh, a vessel, and you have basically one duty, which is to get your goods that are in your ship from either Bermuda or Nassau or Havana, get past the Union Navy, find a Confederate port where you can sell what you have for eight or 10 or 15 or even 20 times what you just paid for it when you left 
support. Oftentimes, it is said that if a blockade runner was able to make it past one time, you paid not only for all your cargo, but for your ship and all your crew. And every subsequent journey that she made through was 100% profit. Sounds like a good deal to me. And and they're a bit of a rock star, right? They're the real celebrities, you know? Yeah, I mean, if you even go back and you look at something like a gone with the wind type of scenario, what was Rhett Butler? Rhett Butler was a blockade running captain. That's how he made all his money. Sign me up. Let's go. Let's do it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah, absolutely. And going back to the ironclads, though, I'm curious, oh. how was food on the ironclads? I mean, how did they arrange that? Yeah, if you if you look at some of the ration issues, you had kind of your dried beef, dried pork. You had beans, you had flour, you had peas. But again, the rations are similar to what you would have had in the army. I think that the biggest difference that you see in the Navy is that a lot of these guys are stationed permanently in one spot, kind of unlike the army, which always has to go from, you know, you're marching, you're going from one place to another. But in the Navy, being in one place, if you get paid, you can use that pay to supplement your diet. You can go into the local market. You can get fresh vegetables, fresh fruit, dairy products, which may not have been available to you if you're marching. And not only that, because you're in the same spot, all you have to have is a little bait and a fishing pole. And man, you are going to supplement the hell out of your diet with your fresh caught catfish or brim or bass or whatever you're able to pickerel, whatever you can get the heck out of your river, you are going to be able to supplement your diet. So in the Navy, you probably have a better, a better diet than you would have had as an infantry guy or in the artillery or even anywhere in the, in the Army. You know, going back to that whole three hots and a cot in the Navy is, is probably still even accurate in the Civil War. You're going to get a, a warmer place to sleep. You're probably not sleeping on the ground most of the time in the Navy, and you're probably going to get better food just because it can be supplemented locally, because you don't have to go from one place to another, you're in the same spot. After the war, a reporter sat down with General Lee and General Hancock and asked them how they planned to spend their days in retirement. They both responded that they would probably subscribe to History Fix and watch the awesome history content available to stream. I'm pretty sure that's how it went. A link to History Fix will be in the show notes. One of the things you mentioned a little bit earlier were the hammock hooks that you found mm -hmm. that indicate that there were hammocks used. Can you talk a little bit more about the excavation process? Unfortunately, with the noose, it wasn't so much of an archaeological recovery as it was done in the early 1960s by a number of people to say, hey, can we make money off recovering an ironclad? And unfortunately, quite a number of objects that we have documentation for were lost. Five finger discounted on the banks of the river in the middle of the night when no one was looking. And so we lost, unfortunately, several really cool artifacts. 
On the other hand, we were able to retain a number of very awesome things like hammock hooks, like hammock rings, like original, a dozen or more original brook rifle shells. Not only shells, but canister shot, grape shot, very, very large exploding shells, solid shot. We fortunately still have a lot of these really cool ordnance pieces. Um, but even if you go through and look at some of the artifacts that we have, we have the original ship's stove. We have the original bell. We have over 12,000 original objects off the ship. Now, a lot of those are, you know, spike, 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 nail, 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 nail. <laughs> but... When you actually look at some of the other things we have, they're very unique and very interesting. A lock for a, a door, or locks, fire hose coupling, original rope, a ladder up into the um, pilot house. So a lot of this really interesting stuff that we have is very unique and very one of a kind. And uh, until uh, items off the CSS Georgia in Savannah come up and are conserved and go on display somewhere maybe as of right now we have the largest intact collection of anyone off of any ship in the confederate navy there are more objects off the news than any other ship in the confederate navy and i think that's kind of really cool kind of interesting and um we have probably quite a few of them on display here obviously we don't have eleven thousand objects on display they're a lot of people are under the assumption that, hey, if it's in a museum collection, the people, visitors can see it. But honestly, probably on average, over 75% of a museum's collection is behind closed doors. You see maybe on average as a visitor, 25, 30% of actually what's in that institution, which leads a lot of people to wonder, oh, what really cool stuff do you have that we don't see as visitors? And the answer is actually most of the really cool stuff is out. A lot of the really boring, mundane, repetitive stuff is kind of what we have in the vault or in storage. So you don't miss it too much, but occasionally we'll come across something that goes, oh, that's really cool. That needs to be out. And what we'll probably do is put it in a temporary exhibit case so that, you know, for about a year or so, you can come and see, oh, really cool. That's neat. But then it goes back in the vault because it's not, it, it wouldn't be on permanent display. Temporary display, yes, not permanent. Unfortunately, just not enough room. Are any of the iconic iron, you know, plates available to see? Yeah, absolutely. We have one, two, we actually have three of them on display. I think we actually have five plates left, and, and three of them are on display. One of them is right next to the ship's bell, you can actually touch it, feel it, hold it. Unlike a lot of museums where you can't touch anything, you can actually touch a few things here, which I think is really cool. Our second piece is a big knuckle piece, which would have been about on the waterline as you're going down. And it's called knuckle because if you look at your fist, as you're going, the iron plate comes down, it hits a spot where the water is, and then it starts to curve back under as the bottom of the hull. Underneath the waterline is all wood. Above is wood, but you've got iron plate on the outside. So that knuckle iron sits right about here before you 
turn over and go down underneath. And then the third piece that we have is actually part of a full-size replica that we have in the museum where you can kind of walk in the casemate and see, hey, this is how it would have felt to be inside an ironclad. We have a single piece on the outside that you're able, again, to touch and feel and, and see how big it is. That piece of plate, two inches thick, six inches wide, maybe a little bit, it's about six, and it's maybe two, two and a half feet high. It's about 280 pounds. It's big. It's heavy. The other piece that we have, the knuckle iron, is almost seven feet long. It's well over 800 pounds. Scrant wrote his personal memoirs. He told his son to subscribe to Military Images magazine. He stated that such a great mag will assist him in jogging his memory in order to produce his now classic work. I'm sure that's exactly how it went. Subscribe at the link in the show notes. Do you have a favorite object inside the museum? Mm, that's a very good question. I don't know. I, the ship's bell, the original ship's bell, is really, really cool. And it's one of those things, if you know anything about the Navy, that, you know, a bell is very, very important for the crew, for the kind of the soul or the heart of the ship, that the bell is really important because not only does it say uh, danger is right around the corner if you're, you know, ringing it furiously, but it's also the ship's time peaks. It tells you when to get up. It tells you when to go to work. It tells you when you're off. It's almost like the school bell when you're at school and in like elementary school or even high school that says ring, 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 go to the next class, ring, 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 school's out, ring, 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 recess. Same kind of thing happens on the ship. And so I think if I had to pick one thing that I really, really thought was cool, ship's bell, but there's also iron plate, you know, that iron plate, I still think is really, really cool. And it's very quintessential ironclad. The uh, uh, the ordnance, you know, solid brook bolt rifle shell, 6.4 inches in diameter, 94 pounds. That could be fired two, two and a half miles. That's a pretty awesome piece too. So I, I don't know. Don't ask me to pick my favorite. I don't know. I like it all. But if I had to pick bell, iron plate, and solid brick bolt, top three. That, that's a solid top three. For people who might want to learn more, is there any reading you would recommend? Well, obviously, I'm real partial to our site. So you can find us on Facebook, CSS News, which is N-E-U-S-E. -E. Search for CSS News. Now, I will say that in Kinston, there are two CSS Newses. There is us, which is the CSS News Museum or CSS News Civil War Interpretive Center. There's also the CSS News too, kind of cool. It is a full-scale reproduction of the ironclad CSS news out of the water, and you can go on board the ship for free every Saturday. That is run by a private 501c3 nonprofit. Uh, we work together in many different areas. We are state-owned. We, we belong to the state of North Carolina. We're part of the Natural Resources, North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources under the Office of uh, State Historic Sites. They are operated by a private 501c3 nonprofit. So we're state-owned, they're privately owned, but we work together. If you come ever come down to Kinston and come to see the museum, we highly recommend go on board the News 2 because they'll give you a really cool idea uh, for what, what the spaces were like and what life was kind of like on board. So CSS News, search for us on Facebook. We also have a website. As far as reading goes, there's a book called Iron and Time, 
specifically on the CSS News, done in the early 1980s. Uh, it's a little dated, but it, it is a really interesting book. Any book by Bill Still, William Still Jr. Bill was kind of the first guy to really get into ironclad development, ironclad construction. And even though his books were written in the, in the 1960s, uh, it is still kind of like the standard by which all other books on ironclads are judged. To me, it's kind of one of those things where, as a Civil War historian, it's great to see new topics and new titles and new stuff coming out. But if you want any understanding of the, the background to a lot of these, go to the primary source. Go to Bell Irvin Wiley. Read the life of Johnny Reb. Read the life of Billy Yank, because he's actually interviewing guys who were there, the primary source guys. And, and as a historian, I'm all about primary source material. Go back and see what do they say. Read their diary entries. Read their letters. Read the newspaper accounts. Now, newspaper accounts, mm, I kind of take some of those with a grain of salt, even in the Civil War, because it's propaganda. Newspapers today, not much different. Television today, not much propaganda. Uh, it, it's trying to, to advocate a viewpoint. Civil War newspapers are no different. So take what you read in a newspaper with a grain of salt, then and now. <laughs> and But for diaries, for letters, for interviews, absolutely. I am a, I am a primary source nut. And uh, we're very fortunate that when it comes to stuff like the crew, we have a, a, a quite a few primary source documents, including stuff out of the National Archives, original crew rosters for the ship that list the name, the age, the uh, in some cases, profession, height, weight, complexion, hair color, eye color. And obviously, when you get over to the side where it says, hey, sign here for your pay, if the guy's just making an X, we know they're not literate. We know they can't read. We know they can't write. Um, and then that tells us so much about them. And then when you're able to find those same guys in the 1860 census, you can say, oh, we had crew members born in New York, New York City. We had a crew member born in New York City. Um, actually, he was one of those guys who was uh, uh, enlisted in, in a Virginia unit and tried for desertion. <laughs> so Frank W. Pittman, if anybody wants to look him up. So we had guys from, a lot of guys from Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, uh, at least one or two from Georgia. We had some from Tennessee. We even had one guy from Texas on board the crew in the CSS News. So uh, some from Philadelphia, one from Delaware, one from Maryland. So again, a very diverse kind of crew, mostly Southern, but not entirely. So I think that, again, that's a very interesting aspect that should probably be explored more. Um, I did my master's thesis on, on the crew of the news. And I think that as you said earlier on in the beginning of this program, the Confederate Navy, the navies in general, really don't get the love that they deserve. And I think it all comes down to one reason. There wasn't the gore and the huge losses in the Navy that you had in the Army. Navy can only get so big. You only have so many ships. But when, you're, when your Army goes from 25,000 to you know, 2.5 million in, in two or three years, that's a, that's a huge change. The Navy doesn't get the love that it deserves, but the Civil War Navy is extremely important. And if you get beyond kind of um, surface level history, um, I think now with, with social, social media 
and 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 posts and stuff like that. There are a lot of people that are just surface historians. But if you dig deeper, you'll find, and I think you know this, that the navies are extremely important to the war and to the whole war effort. Without the blockade, the war looks very different. Without the cooperation of the Navy at places like Shiloh or New Orleans or, or even um, McClellan's Peninsula campaign, the war looks very different. Without the, the sinking of the Alabama, without the attack at Mobile Bay, the attack in Wilmington, all done by the Union Navy, the Red River campaign in 64, it was kind of a disaster, <laughs> but the, the war looks very, very different without the navies, and they definitely need more love. A couple things, you know, a lot of people will say that it was the navy that really won the Civil War in the end, the Union Navy. Certainly to that, help. Absolutely. And, and certainly, General Grant, when he wrote his personal memoirs, in the end, I know he talks about the importance of having a very strong navy. And this is a guy who was an army general, right? Right. So the navy does play a very big role. And even in- when Grant, with Grant personally, at Fort Henry and Fort Donaldson, the Union Navy was always right there next to him and played a huge role. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and spreading some light and love to the, the Navy and the CSS News specifically. I really yeah. appreciate it. And uh, hopefully we can have you on the show again. I'd love to. That's great. Thank you so much for, uh, for your time. I'm, I appreciate it very much. Thank you for listening while road tripping on a plane flight scouting the Confederate Army from a hot air balloon, gathering information on Union movements with Harrison, or whenever you listen to podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the YouTube channel to explore our unique video content. On there, you'll find a documentary on Fredericksburg, my discussion on the best primary sources every Civil War buff should refer to, and much more. Link will be in the show notes. Bye for now, and I hope you tune in for our next episode.